Hello there, Old Green Plain Podcast friends. This episode of the Old Green Plain Podcast is brought to you by the Nebraska State College System, serving over 9,000 students through three geographically diverse institutions, Shadron State, Peru State, and Wayne State, which offer collectively more than 200 degrees, certificates, and pre-professional programs that are accessible on campus, online, and in several locations from around our great state. With more than 270 credentialed faculty members and 50,000 successful graduates, the Nebraska State College System provides significant human and intellectual capital that contributes to the current and future strength of our state of Nebraska. If you or someone you know are interested in learning more about which great institution is best for you, or if you want to see the ways these colleges are making an impact in the areas they serve, go to www.nscs.edu. Again, that's www.nsc, like charlie, s.edu. We're also brought to you by Silverhawk Aviation. Since 1991, Silverhawk Aviation, located right here in lovely Lincoln, Nebraska, has brought customers the absolute best experience for charter flyers all over the Midwest. From a full lineup of Cessna Citation Jets to King Air Turboprops, Silverhawk Aviation gives you the freedom to fly where you want, when you want. Silverhawk has also taken several steps to ensure your safety during this COVID-19 pandemic. Visit their COVID-19 section on their website to see the complete list of steps they are taking from booking your flight to when you're in the terminal and finally when you're in the plane to ensure your safety. And not only do they provide the best in class, safe and trusted charter experience for you, but Silverhawk is also a trusted services provider for all you pilots. From quick turns for you pilots who need to fuel up, get in, get out, to FAA certified maintenance and best-in-class avionic upgrades, repairs, and maintenance, Silverhawk is your trusted and safe aviation partner. And they got great coffee. said it many times and I'll stand by it. Amazing coffee. So (laughs) to check out all the things I mentioned except the coffee part, you can go to silverhawkaviation.com. Again, that's silverhawk.com aviation.com. Okay, this episode of the Old Green Plane of the OGP podcast, we're excited to have um, Paul Terman on. He's the chancellor of the Nebraska State College System. And if you're a parent or maybe a student or just an interested observer who's been watching the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 and, and collectively our response, uh, maybe you're more specifically, as it relates to this episode, interested in what school will look like, um, this is a great episode for you. Uh, we sit down, Colin and I, with uh, Chancellor Terman to discuss the steps that he, his staff, and the staff and administrations at all the uh, colleges across the Nebraska State College System are taking um, to ensure the safety of their students, their faculty, and the members of the community. And it's extensive. And there's a lot that goes into it, including um, stories of what it was like just to go through that um, you know, when it first broke out, which is an interesting kind of behind the scenes stories of, you know, what would it have been like for leaders inside of, you know, education to deal with rapidly changing information and, and still having to provide, you know, education to students on the fly from, you know, computers instead of in person. And that evolution, um, you can tell it's stressful. <laughs> Chancellor Terman and his staff done a great job of managing that, but it's great insight. We also talk a little bit about sports, what that might look like. And honestly, we get to know a little bit more about him. We've had him on in the past. He's a friend of uh, Colin and I's, and we love having uh, Chancellor Terman on because, you know, he, he has a big uh, 
job to do, but uh, you know, he does it in a way that's uh, very relatable to people like, well, me <laughs> and Colin. We're not on his level, uh, doctorate of, of communication. So anyways, we'll, we'll let Dr. Paul Terman, the Chancellor of Nebraska State College System, speak for itself uh, on this episode of the Old Green Plain Podcast. You said that you were going to start this uh, call by book calling by donning an appropriate hat to meet and greet our chancellor Terman with. <laughs> I was actually going to, fellas, I'd like to start this morning off with some calisthenics and stretching. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the good thing is, is on Zoom calls, you can just like, I imagine, you know, now teaching uh, athletic courses at the college level, Chancellor Terman that I could just shake and shimmy back and forth and you don't know if I'm running or not. You'd have no clue. You could have a treadmill in there. We wouldn't know. So Craig, you're saying right now that this just looks like I'm running. You are running. That's what I'm saying. You got an A, Colin. <laughs> you, you got an A <laughs> in workout class at Peru State <laughs> gym. <laughs> Chancellor Turn, how have you been? <laughs> Yeah, the gym guy. So how have you been? I mean, it's been a crazy time. Yeah. It certainly has. Um, I would say that, you know, these are the types of things that you you really don't kind of plan for. I mean, we have pandemic plans um, and kind of worst case scenario um, strategies and matrices on our campuses and how we'll handle different phases of things like this. But it, it, you never really kind of come to grips with the fact that it's going to happen, and that you'd have to close down a, a campus and send students home with roughly seven, eight weeks left in the in the semester. Um, you know, come December, January, I think we were starting to see that things were getting bad. But um, how quickly things turned around in March uh, was somewhat amazing. I think just all of higher education, once we saw the University of Washington system. Uh, uh, make that decision where they sent students home. I think it became so quickly that it cascaded around the country that we then have to step back and really look what guidance is out there. What do we need to be doing? How do we make our students safe and, and faculty and staff safe? Um, can we keep a portion of our operation open for those that have really no place to go? Um, how do we continue to provide the support that they need now that they're off in, in doing um, receive and deliver of their education in ways that they never really anticipated. And the course at the beginning of the semester was not designed in that way. So a lot of different challenges. And um, I'd say that the, the guidance was just constantly ever changing too. Um, one of the examples I give is that I had written up some guidelines on a Wednesday night. Um, the next morning um, it was said that, you know, we have to restrict social distancing in any capacity in all of our facilities down to 250 people. Um, that was what it was at eight o'clock. And then the governor had to lower it down to 50 um, people at noon during his press conference. And then President Trump at the um, session that he was still doing at that time, the national press conference with the task force, they lowered it down to 10. So uh -huh. I had changed our guidelines. Um, and that 
that altered, we could hold a number of our classes together that still would require that kind of applied engagement, but that had to be flipped and that meant, all right, now we do have to basically close down almost everything that we have going on. So it was, it's, it was a difficult time and a very long, it felt like it just never was going to end. Yeah. But I think if there wasn't, <clears throat> if there wasn't a lot of backspacing and deleting and, and there was a clear cut, it would scare the hell out of me if they knew exactly how to respond to this. Cause if they knew exactly how to respond to this, that means that they knew stuff that the general public didn't right? because no one know no one knew the power of this right uh yeah and, yeah. and that's and I, in my mind if, if you're fully prepared for a pandemic uh <clears throat> such as this then i mean how can you prepare for something you don't know exists yeah and i think the it's that each one of these uh viruses end up being so radically different on how they're transmitted um uh, how quickly spread starts to occur and, and how you can actually begin to track that. So, I mean, I think my first year in a system office in South Dakota back in 2006, we were engaged in pandemic planning um, aggressively for the first time. Right. Um, and I remember in like the end of February thinking to myself, boy, we should have our campuses dust those off and take a look at them. And they had <laughs> just started these um, tabletop exercises and I think what we're seeing is just a lot of different things that um, we had planned back then um, are not applicable and are not working. So it's just a, a lot of ongoing modification. And it also, I think, depends on kind of the, the, the type of guidance that you're also getting at the federal level and how that filters down into the states. Um, because I think um, the 2006 and 8 SARS and the, the mm -hmm. bird H1. flu types of mm -hmm. pandemics were things that um, the administration at the time really was trying to to guide and, and create a framework for states to operate within. And now I think we see a lot of things even driven at the, the local health district level that Panhandle Public Health out in the Panhandle, Nebraska, is what guides some of the things we have to put in there for Shadron. So our guidance is a little bit different for three different colleges because each one of those public health districts has chosen to approach it a little bit differently. Um, simply because there's not a, a, a broad umbrella of everyone will do it this way, um, and we try to figure out how to how to approach it and and have faculty and staff that as a system want us to be doing things in common, but we're all also in very very different locations and very differently by um, the pandemic itself. Don't, don't you? Oh, go ahead, Colin. No, you you finish that. I, I had a kind of a question regarding or related to students but yeah ask. Go ahead, he's the guy to ask <laughs> yeah so chancellor i mean we all know that young you know college age kids are they're about as resilient as as they come you know uh we even heard stories the other night around the dinner table of the resiliency of your kids working at menards and uh, home depot right i mean they can adapt to about any situation share with us kind of a cool story of uh some resiliency or, 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 or something that you witnessed that kind of stood out you or your staff or faculty as students are, are, you know, ended this year, unlike any other year, probably in their college careers or that they may ever again. I think in some ways we're somewhat fortunate that um, this was not a unique experience to just one of our institutions or, you know, just our system in general. Um, the fact that, you see whether you were a student at the university system or as a student in Florida, uh, New York, that I think all 
all higher education students recognize that everyone was facing the same types of challenges. And so I think when you, you put yourself into that context, you're also able to probably overcome things in, in a much greater magnitude than, than what we would have seen if it was just, all right, we've got an outbreak at Shattern and we have to close and send people home. And so I, I was, I was fearful of the, the fact that we have to move to remote instruction because I thought we would have um, a significant number of students that would be adversely impacted. You know, we have a lot of first generation students who then go back home um, and they may not have this family support environment that a lot of upper level um, institutions that attract you know, the top 10% of the students around the country, uh, the Harvards and the Yales, they can send their students home and they're not gonna struggle. Um, I think that when you don't have a support environment and the structure and the schedule that oftentimes comes from the face-to-face -face environment on a college campus, especially the smaller college campuses that we have, um, that is the one thing that I think most students really struggle probably the most with and their ability to still find ways to get all the way through the semester and not have to do a, a withdrawal from a class or not fail a class is a, a very good testament. One of the things we can continue to look at is a, something that higher ed uses the term a lot, DWF rates. So it's the number of students who get a D, a withdrawal or an F in a class. And you want those numbers to be, to be low. And we try to evaluate which courses have, and sometimes they use term killer courses to, to define those. Um, here are the ones that are, have the most likelihood of a student struggling or being a hurdle for them to get them toward degree completion. What can we do to make it more successful for them to overcome that? Um, what we're seeing is that our DWFs were not dramatically higher. And we also really? created the opportunity for students to be able to do pass, no pass, um, where they mm -hmm. were getting maybe an A in a class and it dropped into a B and their GPA is extremely important. So uh, you can get a pass in that. It doesn't calculate into your GPA. Um, so you're not adversely impacted, but you still get the credit for the course. And I think what we're seeing is that almost all of higher education has done something along those lines. And we've also basically kind of agreed that this semester is kind of like the asterisk instance that if I'm coming to a graduate program and normally you wouldn't have accepted a pass, no pass uh, grade, that they're willing to accept those um, and not use it as a indicator to exclude a student from being able to go on, on to a professional program that they want to afterwards. Right. So I think um, those are the types of things that we're going to start to see just uh, conversations around. It, are those policies and procedures that we've always held to, are they, are they serving students in the right way? Right. Um, and can we be willing to evolve um, more dramatically to help serve everyone um, in the best way that we can? How much have you seen that where you now, because you've been re kind of forced to rethink and reshuffle the deck in terms of lowest common denominator, what's important, what's not. A lot of the, the talk about that has just been what we've lost and well, you know what, oh man, and all this is going to change and that then being bad. But I imagine you're starting to see opportunities to maybe, like you just mentioned, create different learning opportunities, create different standards that could ultimately maybe benefit education at the college level? Or are you seeing any positive opportunities come as a result of all this? I think so. And, and we're approaching the fall semester really as kind of a pilot for our com compressed academic calendar. So we had made the decision that we were going to start a week earlier and then we're going to infuse into the semester um, as much as we can to be done by Thanksgiving. 
And then that will give us another opportunity to do a three-week uh, D session or D term um, if students want to continue on. So, I mean, think again about kind of the first generation students that we serve in the state college system, that a lot of them are certainly paying um, a significant portion of, of their way through college, many of them working, um, working 20, 30 hours a week while they're still going. Mm -hmm. So if we can get them back and actually, rather than a 17 week or 16 week semester, you can compress that down to 14 and a half. Now they can make the choice of, I can try to infuse as much into that. And then mm -hmm. I maybe have another three or four weeks that I can work over the Christmas break holiday or the, the uh, holiday session. And if we could do that same thing in the spring, then they'll get back to their summer work opportunities earlier and actually have about a month and a half more um, of an opportunity to earn that they then could limit some of the hours that they're taking while they're working um, during the regular semester. The one thing, so the Higher Learning Commission is the entity that really oversees right. us. It accredits um, each one of our institutions, um, serves most of the Midwest institutions. And so they do have a requirement that basically for every one hour of credit that you provide, you have to have some, at least 15 hours of engaged instruction. But the way we've always thought about that engaged instruction is, okay, here's how many weeks we need to make sure if I'm in a class, it's a three credit class, and it needs to meet three times a week for 15 weeks at a minimum to get to that. Well, that's the old seat time model, that the right. only way I'm learning is if I'm sitting in the class engaged with my faculty. And we recognize that that's not the only place that learning happens. So in the compressed calendar, we've identified that we're short about four or five class days or class mm -hmm. hours. And what we've asked our faculty to do is find ways to infuse other learning opportunities where students can be doing that with their peers outside of class. Um, you know, normally you might have a student come in and take a test during the class period. We've adopted software now that allows for proctored exams outside. And so um, do that, take your tests outside of the class, and then everything you ask students to come back for and engage in the classroom experience um, really is driving the instruction, not the assessment of the course. So those are the types of things that I think we're going to see a lot of higher education institutions uh, being willing to really rethink some of those different environments. Um, I'll give you my communication example. Yes. That, you know, I used to teach some speech classes, and I would say that 80% of the classroom experience for students was listening to other students speak in the class. Mm -hmm. So you would talk about how to design an informative speech, you can help them work on their outlines, and then you still had to get them to give that speech and evaluate it and you have them do it in front of their audience. I mean, just think of the host of ways that that could be done differently um, if you're not requiring that um, the only way for me to deliver the speech is in uh, up in front of everyone in a class. And that's probably the most unauthentic uh, speaking experience that you've ever had in your life. Tell me when you've given a speech outside of high school or college where you've been given the choice of what you get to talk about. Normally that's not right. your option. Um, and then you have a forced audience that is there to uh, require to listen to you. Right. Um, and, and yes, so it's no wonder that that has always been such an anxiety provoking type of experience that um, you know when you get to um, give presentations that are tied to the things you do every day, um, you're fully vested in them, you're fully informed, and your ability to present on them increases dramatically. And I think those are the types of things that we're gonna to start to see um, how 
computer labs, how uh, chemistry labs with simulation, um, our ability to adapt and integrate technology and then use our face-to-face -face engagement in far more meaningful ways than what we've seen in the past. But, yeah, are you, do you foresee then this model? I mean, just let's say for a second pandemic, ups and leaves, Corona's like, I'm good, you guys are crazy, I'm out. Aliens will come and get you all soon. Uh, do you see a model like this extending beyond the need for it now? Or do you, because I mean, what I'm hearing is like, you know, the idea that hands-on learning engagement on your own terms is also important, which, you know, like the classroom model doesn't have a lot of it. I think that's still a part of it. But do you see some of this staying for the long term or will we just go back to the way things work? I work? think so. No, I believe, you know, there's a, an entity called the Education Advisory Board, EAB. Um, that they've coined this kind of classroom concept of high flex, um, the ability to mm -hmm. move between different modalities at almost any time. So you design your course in that fashion. Um, you design it so that if I had a student who has to, you know, now in this situation, they've been quarantined for 14 days. Well, can I, do I have a design so they can still take part in the class experience during that time? And then 14 days later, they're back and they're not behind in any way. I think that's the type of thing that K-12 really is experiencing now. I think the joke that people have kind of like, the opportunity to have snow days is probably all but gone because our K-12 teachers are have had the experience of um, transitioning to that remote delivery, uh, utilizing Zoom and, and a variety of other things where I think they'll have the capacity to be able to continue on with instruction, even if you can't get into the building. So yeah. I think that is this kind of evolutionary thing that for a while we might not have been willing to, to push and, and try to tackle, but it's forced us to do it. And I, we're gonna take the fall semester and really assess how our students have reacted to it. We've gotten very good reaction from them at the onset. They wanna be back, they wanna be back on the campuses. Um, the opportunity to be done by Thanksgiving, I think has been very positive for them. And even the opportunity to take some additional credits and maybe even be done a semester earlier by uh, filling in that, that D term. I had been, even before this happening, talking with our academic leads on the campuses about, so at what point is the spring break still something that's a viable <laughs> kind of element of our enterprise? I mean, the students that we serve are not packing up and leaving for a week and going to exact locations. They're most part going back home. Um, our student athletes, that's the opportunity for them to go and, and they're taking part. I mean, you know what baseball was like yeah. um, as a, a college athlete. The spring break was the time to go down south to actually get some games games in, in. and so <laughs> right. we don't have a lot of and that what became our problem we had sent students off on spring break they came back from florida mm. and had to be quarantined for 14 days um, right. so the high flex would have given them an opportunity if we continued forward with it but i'd really like to see spring break be something that just goes away um, and i think students are going to be better served our, our residence hall and dining uh, capacity um, that shortens by week, it makes it a little bit more cost efficient for them. Um, but they also are getting the opportunity to be back home um, or in the, the in the community where they're going to school and starting sure. work a week earlier than what we uh -huh. anticipated by compressing those calendar structures. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned uh, getting out a week earlier and and kind of reiterated that because so far in the past five minutes, my body took the shock of the realization of possibility of no more snow days <laughs> and then and then wait you want to take and listen i haven't been in college now for 23 years but 
spring break too. Jeez, these things are a jeff. Damn you, COVID. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what I was thinking, uh, I, Colin. You had to go through this year having uh, your daughter uh, graduate, and she's senior. Uh -huh. and I was thinking, you know, the unique difference is that we all know what that was like having all graduated ourselves i mean mm -hmm. take us through what was that like what did you guys do for her graduation what was the basic are they having a ceremony now or yeah they are going to have a ceremony uh lincoln christian did a great job on on following protocol but uh you know so we're doing a ceremony and then we're actually going to do a grad party for her um at the end of july um and both you are well aware of uh my my workshop <laughs> yes your is, workshop lots of sets, workshops go on out there <laughs> sets up very nicely for things like grad parties uh so we're, we're planning on doing that but you know <clears throat> that was kind of interesting craig because you would think that oh my gosh these poor seniors again i look at the resiliency of, mm -hmm. of, of a teenage kid and it's i mean ella called it coronacation yeah and you know it was the other thing that was you know, kind of how we run our business, Craig, is we run on the the four hour work day, yeah. mm -hmm. right. you know, and, and, and that's when I would see Ella go through her Zoom classes and do the lesson and then crush through her homework. She was done in about half of the time as normal, you know, and I can't, I'm not saying that that was every day. But if you remember when we switched our company from, you mm -hmm. know, nine to five from mandatory work hours. 10 to two, just don't be on your phones and just come in, lock in, and then make sure you're home with your families or working out before and after work. So you're better in your life. If you remember how much our productivity went up astronomical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's amazing what we can fit in when you just put your head down and get the work done. Yeah. And so yeah. watching Ella, she flew, you know, her last few weeks, a uh, month or month and a half of school. She, <laughs> She did great in some courses, some that, you know, the, the one thing that I will say is on the courses that she really uh, lost interest in and didn't have her, you know, her teacher there driving and setting the pace. That's where the struggles were. Yeah. Well, don't, don't you, I mean, last time we all three talked, <clears throat> not only for the video portion, but when we did the podcast, we talked about this idea of like kind of a more of a, a hands-on kind of educational system where you're getting, you know, real on the job training. We talked a lot about, you know, um, Oh, you know, not only just like uh, working and on, on behalf or what is it called? Lord, I haven't had enough coffee, evidently. What is it called when you go work for someone, but you're not officially working Internship. for Thank you. Internship. Good Lord. Experiential, the field experience, yeah. depending on kind of what Craig, you're you? in. It's like <laughs> Everything okay in there, Craig? I had to play some princess tunes earlier. My brain was just, you know, so... No, what I, was, what I want to bring up is this idea that now Colin brings up something that's intriguing. I saw too, because I was forced into being, you know, daddy daycare slash teacher role. And uh, I, I viewed some of that experiential learning opportunities as, is important, to, not more important than the actual work that we needed to get done, the coursework. But I'm wondering, you know, Chancellor, when you look at, because <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, you're evolving that not only by, you know, moving back the semester opportunities for students to go work, you know, whether that's work they need to do just to make some extra money to reduce the cost or work to potentially get ready for the job they have. Do you see other experiential opportunities? You kind of already, you know, mentioned it. Uh, are you guys thinking through opportunities? Because Colin brings it up. If <clears throat> for less time, you know, spent, you know, in the face-to-face -face classroom environment, which I know is still going to happen in the fall. 
do you then still look for other ways that maybe they can get hands-on, you know, learning opportunities with what they're going to do? Because at the college level, it's much different than high school, obviously. Yeah. No, I, I think those are some of the things that we've been talking about on how potentially that D-term session really could be used in that type of, of method where, you know, students who either locally, um, an internship opportunity for now what would have just been over the, the holiday break, um, which is not an ideal time to, to be kind of planting yourself. But if you can, on December 1st, be able to do that all the way through maybe about January 15th, then uh, there's a experience that it's either it's relatively short, maybe just a three credit hour experience at a at a company that then could be re-engaged um, later in the spring. And so we've talked about how experiential learning opportunities might um, be able to be infused into that. I also think that as more companies have gotten used to the remote kind of work environment mm -hmm. um, and seeing that there's there are opportunities there. That right now you take where our students are located, um, Peru. I mean, a lot of those students simply, you know, could work either in Lincoln or Omaha, um, in Nebraska City, get internships there. Norfolk and um, Columbus for and Sioux City for Wayne. But in Shadron, I mean, Scotts Bluff, it's, it's Shadron. The the opportunities to get a lot of uh, kind of meaningful internship experiences are only going to happen if you're willing to kind of uproot yourself and then go live in that community for um, an entire semester. And so that's always, I think, been some of the hurdles as to why students don't wanna do that. Because if I do it and I still have to take another six credit hours, that means I have to take it online and that had not been the preference I have. But I think companies might also start to see that you can continue to do uh, a meaningful experience by having and engaging students remotely um, and having them work and, and facilitate projects and, and work with your teams in that type of environment and they don't actually have to come and, and be in the physical proximity. And so I think we're gonna to start to see some of those types of things change uh, down the road. But I think this, you know, one of the things we talked quite a bit about um, uh, in the flight in our last podcast is that just kind of that notion about a meaningful experience. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that you, you found a way to actually engage them in types of uh, experiences that will um, reinforce to them that this is what it's going to be like and would be like um, when you come and work for my company after you're done. And doing that in Nebraska is one of the things that we're always trying to push and, and drive so we can keep as many of the students that we've attracted um, for the state itself and feed its workforce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, um, I, I also, I, you know, when you talk about the bringing in to Nebraska, are you at all worried that now just in general parents, students are worried about going to another state or because maybe of the low, you know, in, you know, rates that we've had here and in the Midwest in general, do you see maybe an opportunity for people to say, oh, you know, we, they're doing something right or, you know, they're spread out or whatever the nature of it is. Uh, do you, are you sensing yeah. any of that right now? We are actually just right before I jumped on this call, uh, Moody's, which is, does kind of the credit ratings for the yeah. states and, and different institutions. Um, they came out with an assessment where here's what the impact is that they're predicting for all 50 states on students staying close to home um, and not being willing to, to move out. The state that actually they're predicting is going to have the biggest increase, about a 20 to 40 percent, is Alaska. Um, <laughs> those students are Get out. now are leaving now Alaska and Hawaii, um, yep. two different states that they lose a lot. <laughs> I think Nebraska is kind of in the middle of the mix there. Um, they were showing us at about a maybe a 10% decrease 
So if you look at our, our balance of uh, in-state, out-of-state students, um, we're routinely at about a 2,700 um, to the plus of students that we attract in that we, um, that minuses out the, the, those that we lose. So we lose about, um, I think it's 1,300, actually, I'm sorry, we're 1,300 in the, in, in the, in the black that we attract more, but we're losing 2,700 out and we're bringing in about 4,000 or so students. So if they're on the peripheral of our states, then um, I think we're gonna be fine. The Southern Hills of South Dakota still are mm -hmm. gonna be easily attracted down into Shadron, same thing in Wyoming on that outer skirts. Um, it's been, gonna be the students that you attracted away from an Illinois or a Michigan. Oh. Um, I think mm -hmm. those are gonna be the types of students that are gonna be less likely. So I think um, that's one of the things that the university system, Ted Carter, the new president there has kind of noted that they believe that they're gonna have a drop in non-resident students and but that's going to be a pickup of the students who are in Nebraska that normally would have left to go to some of those states right. are going to probably stay home so it might be a wash for them for them but yeah. international students is one uh, market that we know um, just with all that continues to happen um, if you found yourself here and your inability to get home um, was was gone then I think a lot of those families uh, around the country and around the world are going to be less likely to want to send their students anywhere other than locally uh, for a short period of time until this really does evolve and, and find ourselves it find it behind us yeah yeah oh, man yeah interesting times um okay because sports we're all sports fans you two have special connection to wrestling both as former wrestlers and having had and do have sons who are doing it let's talk about sports uh in the time of covid uh, especially you chancellor you are you know part of or the head of three institutions that all have you know pretty significant sports um as i know personally having played at true state what is the makeup look are we no no offense you two wrestlers but is wrestling gone that's pretty <laughs> close contact or are we i mean I, I love sports i don't think there's a better gauge uh it, well there's many gauges of internal you know fortitude and strength but I, there's a at sports was a really unique one uh, especially in the team sense can you walk us through what it's looking like in the fall uh, what do you see that you have challenges in front of you? <clears throat> right now, the NCAA Division II and NAIA have have really come out with some 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 good guidelines. I think they've made decisions on trying to shorten up the calendar um, for a number of the sports so that they have fewer contests but are still um, have enough to be able to gauge postseason play. And I don't know that I've seen that as much at the Division One level, but they they have pretty rigid guidelines about um, how to uh, disinfect uh, balls and equipment, how to engage with coaching staff, how to keep social distancing in relative uh, groups, how to do more aggressive testing. I think the one thing that's probably going to be the hardest, um, and I, I think wrestling as a context sport, we've got a, quite a few that are. I mean, you can't say that basketball, right. soccer. I mean, those people come in contact with each other as much as, I mean, not in, you know, as detail. You could wipe down after every match if that's what they want. Stop shaking hands with coaches, having mm -hmm. the refs uh, not raise hands. Um, I think those will become kind of some of the norms that we're going to start to see, and we may get back to that down the road. But wrestling has always been one of those sports that we've, we've been exposed to. You do skin checks. Um, and uh, the AIDS epidemic, there was this fear that just with bloody noses and things like that, that it was going to be a sport that couldn't survive. 
Um, and we were able to overcome that hurdle. But I think we'll, we'll just adapt. And keeping athletes honest about symptoms is probably going to be one of those big hurdles. So, I mean, mm. think about athletes now. I, I get <laughs> yeah. a yeah. Um, my bell rung during a, a game, and um, I see stars. And I need to be forthcoming about right. the implications of concussion because it's significant. And I think that's why all three divisions have really put in such rigid requirements as it relates to concussion protocols. You, you need the athlete to be honest about what they're experiencing. If my ability to start as the quarterback on Sunday um, means that am I experiencing any symptoms right now, I'm, we need them to be honest about what they're experiencing because that spread may, may mean that 10 of their co-players co um, right. more athletes and teammates are not getting to compete because they all have now become positive. So right. I think we're going to see a, a lot more aggressive um, types of, of testing. Temperature taking um, in advance of competitions is probably going to be uh, per routine, and that's the expectation that you bring a clean team with you if you travel down to another facility uh, to compete. I think the governor's um, – Proclamation to his DHMs about uh, outdoor uh, uh, spaces that had come July one. Um, you can you can play football and what Memorial Stadium, what the Oak Bowl down in Peru, and uh, any of our facilities will look like. Uh, we certainly will continue to strongly encourage uh, face masks. Um, if you cannot, or face coverings in some way, if you can't create social distancing in the uh, environment itself. We just have to take those precautions and make sure that people are following through with it because it's our willingness to do some things to get the benefit of watching sports is what's mm -hmm. going to help make them a reality. So um, I kind of use the, the comment, uh, somebody's like, can we require people to wear uh, face coverings in classes? Well, if you're in a chemistry lab, we, we ask those people to wear um, the appropriate types of clothing. We ask you to wear safety glasses. Um, and if you're in a classroom that can accommodate social distancing, we're just going to need you to wear a face mask to protect uh, everyone else and the faculty who may be at risk. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful. I see a lot of kind of resistance around the country. But by the time we get back to it, the choices are we're going to come back and do face-to-face -face engagement in all these different types of ways of our life. And it just means we have to sacrifice on this piece. Mm. Um, in some situations, we just have to be willing to do that. Well, yeah, yeah, you go ahead, Colin. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, as you're talking and because and, we still have, geez Louise, actually, we don't have that much time until school starts back up. But, yeah. you know, I look at the past eight weeks and how people have started to lax. And even, even during the, you know, the worst, if you will, the worst of it, you drive by Home Depot and, and <laughs> Menards and Lowe's and their parking lots were packed. And it was kind of like society was saying, oh, yada, yada, yada. Well, now, you know, restaurants are opening back up. Bars are opening back up. We're talking about getting kids to school again. And meanwhile, <clears throat> cases are on the rise again. And it's almost like society is numb to it. And like, at this point, you know what? I've, I've got, so I guess, let me get to a question here. Is it going to be increasingly harder to get people to adhere to the face mask rules and then you you, you you know you get the people that are hey wear a face mask and I don't have to because I'm you know if you're susceptible you stay home I shouldn't have to right. you know, 
I think we're gonna see resistance. Um, I think that's just the, the nature of any kind of new requirements. You throw out a dress code, um, people are gonna resist to, to those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, maybe some of the spikes and one, the one thing that's gonna benefit Nebraska is that we've yet to really kind of fall on our back into that significant spike and seeing cases higher than what we saw uh, back in, in April and May to date. And um, part of that is kind of the, the, the density that we have as a state. We don't have as much in terms of people coming into contact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis um, as what you see in kind of the Arizonas, the Floridas, and, and New Yorks, and um, I think New Jersey types of locations that continue to spike dramatically. So I'm hopeful that people will look around those environments and, and also recognize that okay, I, I still need to take some additional precautions. Otherwise, it's going to come back and it's going to spike here. And we're just not going to be able to uh, allow a dramatic reopening. That Once you get for heat at the phase four DHMs, as long as we don't see dramatic increases. And to do that means I have to uh, comply a little bit. I think on uh, Sunday night, my son will, Unfortunately, he works at Menards, and Menards is one of those places that does require you cannot go into Menards if you don't uh, have face covering. They've, they've been doing that for almost two months now. The other thing that they required is that you can't, anybody under the age of 16 can't be in. So it's not a family outing anymore. Go right. get what you need, protect the employees and everyone else that's in there. So he got stuck on the door for the first time to enforce the face mask policy and probably the worst four hours of his work experience ever because, because head, head one in 10 want to fight and, and kind of argue with that. It's like, yeah. it's our policy. It's, it's what we're recommending just to, to keep people as safe as possible. And, you know, medical condition, you know, we have face guards and nobody wants to wear those either, but you know, can help us go in, we'll go in and shop and get you what you need but just kind of a, a, a resistance to um, complying with things that people are trying to put in place to provide safety. Um, I think people slowly will, that, that will evolve. Um, I think if the university system says you need to have a face mask to get checked into Memorial Stadium and watch the Huskers play, uh, people right now that are probably not walking to Menards will put on a face mask. Yeah. To, so don't fall off sometimes what your priorities are too. Um, and we need to get people to note that the priority is keeping our society as safe as possible. And this is a small little inconvenience to accomp help accomplish that. It's right. what you brought up before with uh, this idea of an, a player who has their own worries about wanting to start and, you know, get the playing time, but now would have to self-report symptoms or tell the team, you know, and that, that kind of, decision you make as an individual or for you know making uh, you know decisions for the greater good right that's a that's a, to me i have hope with athletes right that will make those decisions but like colin said you like the f growing frustration level being able to hey you know what i'll just stay home i don't feel good or oh you know what i'll wear a mask whatever i just got to go get some nails yeah. right like mm -hmm. i i am confident <clears throat> that as we evolve like you said i think we'll all learn that there's a mutual benefit but but i i see that i, I worry about your how you guys will have to deal with that come fall. Um, real quick, because uh, I want to transition, we, we've got to wrap up here shortly. I know you're, you are a chancellor. <laughs> you are the only one out of us wearing a suit. <laughs> so uh, I, I talk to the parent right now. 
who is not waffling, knows son or daughter needs to go to college because it's college, but just, you know, wants reassurance or needs to know like, oh, hey, what do I need to, what do I need to hear to feel good about where I'm going? So real quick, tell us what that message would, to, would be to a parent or a guardian. I think the important thing to, to note for, for parents who are coming back to one of our three colleges is that, you know, we've, we've taken a, done a lot of diligence on what's the right way to do things like screening. How do we do that initial assessment when people come back, especially if they're coming back from outside of the state? Um, what will our testing protocol be in that we, you know, I think are fortunate to be gov um, partnering with Governor Ricketts right now and um, ensuring that if you need tests, we'll, we'll partner and, and they're helping to, to cover those costs. So we're doing everything we can, at least on the testing screening piece, that if someone is sick, we'll, we'll find them, we'll get them quarantined. Um, they'll be able to continue on with their educational um, endeavor without any delays, and then get back into um, the system once they've overcome those symptoms. Um, in addition to putting in place almost all the different things that we know we need, um, you know, any place where there's a lot of engagement between staff and students, we have the plexiglass um, uh, being uh, erected mm -hmm. across a, a good number of places on campuses. We've looked at all of our different classrooms and said, if we can accommodate social distancing in here, we'll probably ask for face covering. But we'll also maybe we're going to split these two sections into rather than 30 students, we'll have two sections of 15. Um, and give more opportunities in smaller uh, groups to be able to engage. The cleaning um, regiments are, have been ramped up dramatically. Um, we've looked at hiring additional custodians to, to be able to do that. And I also think it, it's, or it's, this kind of goes back to that social obligation. We're asking people just to assist in doing some of that as well. I had uh, a meeting uh, with Governor Ricketts here a couple weeks ago with all the other red leads in the state. Um, and in this conference room on every one of the corners, you saw the big boxes of wipes. And we were all responsible for wiping down the, the table that we sat at, all six feet uh, difference. We had a mask to get into the room. Um, but even the governor takes upon himself that I'm gonna wipe down the area that I was in. And we're looking to ask students when you're done, rather than having a custodian have to come in and, and take an hour break between the class, just wipe down your space. Make sure that you're using hand sanitizers. And if you have symptoms, just stay home. And it means our attendance policies need to be a little bit more, um, less restricted than what they've been in the past. I think we as a culture um, in our work life and school life is that if you're sick, you, you, the expectation you still keep coming to work. And I think that has, has changed uh, quite yeah. a bit now that you've got any symptoms then stay away if you've got the yeah. symptoms that they say are attributed to this you need to get tested um and we're we want you to stay away until you can come back and that you're healthy and not going to cause any um, significant spread so we'll also be doing uh, aggressive i think the governor had noted they've hired um their plan to by the time we hit august about a thousand people um employees to do um the tracing that's needed so when we find a case uh, we'll mm -hmm. be able to figure out who they've had contact with and get them tested as quickly as possible as well. Um, so I think all of those are things that we did not have in place in March, which meant you've just got to send people home. Right. So we are in a much, mm -hmm. a, a much better place now than what we were two, three months ago. And I think the state's capacity for testing is somewhere around eight to 9,000 now. And by doing kind of sole uh, groupings, 
the National Guard or different hospital organizations that the state is contracted with can do up to 1,500 people at a given time. Mm. And the results are, wow. are back within the average is 28 hours now. So wow. we, we're, um, we're just in a very good place, I think. Yeah. And I think people should feel safe that when we do have a case, we'll do everything we can to make sure that it doesn't become a significant outbreak because we'll get them separated, get them healthy, and then, then get them back. Yeah. That's great. Uh, Chancellor, before we let you go, I mean, that's awesome to catch up with you again. Uh, but before we let you go, so one of the things as you and I have been uh, friends for a lot of years, and one of the things that I didn't really realize about you until the past probably six or seven months, maybe a year, is how good of a damn cook you are. What? How do we not find so, out sooner? Oh, my goodness. Craig, I'm telling you, Kevin raves about the Chancellor's <laughs> charcuterie boards every time he's around. But I'll tell you, so the other night, so Sunday nights are kind of Paul's night to cook. And the other night our family was invited and he made these steak sandwiches. And it was one of those things that just melts in your mouth. And when I was talking to his wife, Shelly, she said, oh, Sundays, that's Paul's thing. He surprises us with whatever he's making. Paul, tell us your favorite dish and give us a quick synopsis like tell us your favorite easiest best tasting dish well sometimes the the best tasting is not the easiest um i would say the the kind of steak sandwiches that you guys had seems to be the the fan favorite for the turman boys uh -huh. um the first time i made those um i only did like one huge kind of roast and um I think what they've come to, to realize is they actually are better on day two and day three <laughs> when you reheat those. Um, and so, no, I've, I've certainly started to enjoy cooking a little bit. I used to do a lot of woodworking mm -hmm. and it's kind of gotten to the point where um, I just, uh, I, I helped my dad back in, in pier a lot on the weekends doing different things. And um, I don't have that type of thing to occupy my time. So I like being busy and cooking on Sunday seems to be a, a thing that's helped do that. Um, I don't come up with these uh, recipes on my own. I find them on Pinterest or YouTube. Ah. And, um, <laughs> Love and, Pinterest. And then give them a test, test run. And uh, a lot of times they, they'll, they'll be honest and say, you know, don't do that one again. Um, <laughs> but the vast majority of the things they seem to like and, um, I, I enjoy doing it as well. So can we, my, can we, can yeah, we look forward to nothing else? I was going to say, can we look Go forward ahead, to seeing a, oh, can we look forward to seeing a class uh, taught at any one of your institutions uh, cooking with Chancellor Terman? Is that an opportunity that we could Co get in? Oh. Cooking with the Chancellor. <laughs> yeah, cooking no, with the Chancellor. Probably not. I don't think, oh. I don't think the accreditors feel as if that I'm a qualified instructor in that, in that regard. So not enough years uh, of experience nor the, the uh, academic uh, chops to be able to do that either. Talk to the- All your, the... your, your hesitancy on that answer said it all. You didn't need to- <laughs> the, yeah. uh, 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 uh. Basically, hell no, Craig. Yeah, well, we can always help. Zoom, Zoom classes then. So okay, we're well... gonna close with a quick story. So just this is one more quick story. Um, but this, you know, Chancellor, it's, it's one thing in your, you know, in your position, how everybody knows you and, and, and but it's another thing to know the person. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the most unique things about Old Green Plane is the history behind it. It was my dad's plane. We found it. We fly it. We interview people. <clears throat> a few weeks back, you told me a story of a pickup. Give us the Cliff's notes on this because this is cool as hell now. This is cool. Yeah, so uh, back in, I think it would have been 1979, my dad had wrecked a pickup. Um, he was bringing back some alfalfa bales for my grandfather who raced uh, quarter horses and somebody ran into him and it totaled the pickup, totaled his trailer that he'd built. Um, so he built, he bought a, you know, it's probably one of the only first, or the only new pickups he ever bought. It was a 1980 uh, Chevy Scottsdale, uh, light blue, um, nice mag wheels on it and everything. Um, ultimately, about six, seven years later, my brother and I finally began to drive and that became the pickup that we got to drive um, our first couple of years. And then for whatever reason, he traded it off in, in 1987 and it went to a uh, an old farmer who lived maybe about an hour away from pier and he passed away like 93. And then, um, the wife had still used it maybe about one time a year to go out and, and assist with feeding, um, on this ranch that they have. Well, she passes away and just kind of out of the blue, it ultimately gets in the hands of, um, a former colleague of mine who had been going through the glove box who they're getting ready to sell it. And it actually had the, the deed of sale to my dad from back in 1980 uh, with his signature and everything on it. She was mainly asking if I wanted that paperwork because she knew that he had passed away. And I'm like, well, yeah, if, if this is actually the pickup and you know what it looks like. So you got a 40 year old pickup that still runs perfect, looks exactly the same, hardly any uh, rust, any damage on it because they had it in a Quonset hut for, for almost nine to 10 months out of the year. Um, and only 80,000 miles on it. So I ended up, I was like, I'll just buy it. <laughs> Don't even worry about posting it. My brother went and picked it up for me. Uh, at some point, I need to get back to pier and, and actually haul it down here and, um, uh -huh. and figure out what I'm going to do with yet another vehicle in uh, a old blue truck. That's already one out of, it's a yeah light blue truck. It's, it's actually in really good shape. So it's awesome. I, I'll show a picture of it to you next time I see you, Craig. Oh, I love that. So old blue truck. That's what we got to do. We'll interview show with the old chancellor and get some. Well, <laughs> well, that way, next time we get snowed out of our trip to. Uh, to <laughs> we have a backup. Can, yeah, we have a backup. We have a backup. Yeah. I could see old green story. plane flying and old, old, old blue truck actually truck. passing us because we're flying through a headwind. <laughs> <laughs> with snow on the way. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to say real quick to uh, Chancellor, I, you know, I follow you guys on Twitter, obviously, since the last time we connected, got to know you, followed you, paid attention. Uh, I watched your, uh, not only your organization, you know, the state college system's response, but your response personally, not only to the COVID uh, pandemic issue, but what's been going on recently with some of the protests and riots and uh, you know, equal opportunity things are going on. And, and I've been amazed and consistently impressed by your response. Um, it is leadership. It is someone who's an expert in communication. And so just, you know, on behalf of me and I mean, Old Green Plain and people that watch it, I appreciate that because I've learned now. I've seen the leaders that I want to follow and I, the, the organizations and institutions I'll trust and those that, you know, for whatever reason, I don't. And, and you guys have handled it really, really well. So I think that's a testament to you and, and your team. And yeah, absolutely. So Colin, we'll make sure uh, I'll give to, you uh, praise later. Your, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> we'll make sure to post your Twitter handle. Uh, on oh, yeah. Ball. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but thank you very much for your time. Yeah. I know you're a busy guy. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah, I'm going to uh, run upstairs and try to piece my life together by trying on a suit now because you've inspired me. No, no, I'm no I pants. Expect it the next time I'm out. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, that's brother. right. All right, Chancellor. Good talking with you. All right. Thanks, guys.